4: tika.com Hi, I'm Pete Buttigieg and welcome to the Deciding Decade. One reason I wanted to launch this podcast is because I believe we are at the outset of the decade that's going to shape the rest of our lives in America. Now, that decade has begun with a challenging year, to put it mildly. And yet I also feel from the position of 2020 that the 2020s could wind up being the threshold of a new and I hope much better, fairer, and more decent period in American history. For that to happen, there are going to have to be a lot of decisions, not just policy decisions, but in our ordinary lives across our culture about what kind of country we're going to be. And those decisions will happen in every field. One of the most important fields is the law. Like so many Americans, I've been thinking a lot about justice and accountability. And I'm thinking about what the future of justice can look like in this country, in this moment, and in the post-Trump era, How do we make sure the Department of Justice and our whole judicial system actually help everyday people, not Wall Street, and not, for example, a corrupt president? In my mind, Preet Bharara is the perfect person to help us face these questions because of the work he's done in the Southern District of New York. He formed the Terrorism and International Narcotics Unit and led the charge in several high-profile convictions, including Osama bin Laden's son-in-law, international arms traffickers, heads of major financial organizations, members of hacking groups, and more. You've likely seen his name in the news because of all of these incredible accomplishments, or because of his highly acclaimed book, Doing Justice, or his popular podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, or perhaps because he was fired by President Trump, and not in an apprentice sort of way, three months into that presidency, another topic that I'm looking forward to delving into. Uh, welcome, Preet. Thanks for making time and great to have you.
2: Thank you, Mayor Pete. May I still call you Mayor Pete? <laughs> I'll still answer to it. <laughs> okay. No, it's it's, a, it's an honor to be here. Thank, thanks for having me.
4: So, uh, so many things I'm I'm eager to talk with you about. But first, I, I want to rewind into your story a little bit because the immigrant experience, I think, is, is front and center in how we're thinking about what it means to be American and, and, and the relationship that people have to this country. You were born in India and two years later, I believe you and your parents immigrated to the US, settled in New Jersey. And uh, I'm just curious, what motivated them to come to the US? What was their experience like? And what was your experience like uh, growing up here in the US?
2: That's an issue that obviously is an important one for policy reasons, political reasons, legal reasons. And I've dealt with those issues, both as US attorney and when I was working in the Senate for, for Chuck Schumer. But obviously, it's a very personal issue. And my dad left the place of his birth and took me from the place of my birth for the same reason that millions and millions of people have done so over generations. And that's because of the promise of a better life, a promise of opportunity, which he thought he could get only in the United States. And that is why it's so disconcerting and distressing to see, you know, certain policies being enacted, certain kinds of rhetoric being used where people like my mom and my dad, you know, wonder a little bit if the country is as open and welcoming as it was back in the early 1970s when they came to America. I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago about this little voice that I imagine is in every immigrant's head that says, after having done the very, very difficult thing, people will not appreciate it. You don't just sort of pack your bags and come to America and like, it's easy. It's really hard. You know, my dad is one of 13. My mom was one of seven and you know, their parents were still alive. Um, and to leave every friend and leave every tradition and leave your food and your culture and your language behind To go to a place that has a lot of promise, it's still not an easy thing to do. And and I imagine this voice in every immigrant's head asks the question, was it the right thing to do? Was it a good decision? And you hope and believe if you become successful, and my parents, children, you know, my my brother and I both became successful here. And you think, yes, you know, it was worth it. It was right. But there are moments when you see this rhetoric and you see certain things happening and you see the travel bans being enacted. And you wonder, you know, am I really being accepted in America fully or only, only superficially? And am I just grandfathered in or other people like me still permitted to come and experience opportunity and achieve great things in this country? And you wonder about that sometimes. You know, I've had a blessed life. My my father and mother both have. They're both still with us and my brother, too. But it's an astonishing thing when not long ago, Kamala Harris, was picked to be the VP, you know, she's black, also Indian. And it's that moment where I imagine people, like my mom was the most excited person I talked to that day. Hmm. She, cause usually she's calling up and asking about my kids and about how <laughs> other things are going. All she wanted to talk about was, was Kamala Harris. Yeah. Cause she was so excited. And I, and I thought to myself, it's a little bit of a clarion loud answer to the question, was it worth it? Well, yeah, if someone whose parents are like my mom and dad, if she could be the vice president of the United States of America, well, then yeah, this was the right thing to do. This was the right place to come. Yeah. So that's a long winded way of saying. Yeah, I think about it a lot. You know, there are not a lot of Indian people in Central Jersey at the time. There were no real Indian restaurants. And we had a normal life other than, you know, people had a lot of questions. When I was a child in elementary school and people would say, where are you from? And, and I would, you know, explain that I was born in India. I was Indian. People would ask me if I lived in a teepee. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> I think I, I think that the kids my children go to school with now don't make that mistake. But you know, we, we had a normal American upbringing. You know, I I played Little League baseball for one year, and then I was terrible. My brother played for a long time. And, you know, we grew up with my mom cooking Indian food at home and listening to Indian music at home. My mom's a great cook. She learned how to make, you know, Italian food and American food with Indian inflections. Doing fusion before it was cool. Exactly. (laughs) She would make burgers, but they would have a little bit of spice in them. It (laughs) took a lot, It took you know, some more years for the general American palate to become familiar with Indian food. And now Indian food is everywhere. Look how far we've come. (laughs)
4: <laughs> I was going to say I mean one one interesting thing I think through our lifetimes in America has has been seeing the country grow more and more cosmopolitan I, I know my family experience is a little bit different, but my father immigrated from this tiny island country of Malta whose whose culture is roughly like that of, of Italy or Sicily in a lot of ways. And, you know, something as simple as uh, he'd make espresso after dinner. That was like a weird immigrant thing when I was a kid that right. made us kind of weird <laughs> and different. And, you know, by the time I'm finishing college, it's cool. So so you have this upbringing, then it leads you to some of the most exclusive, prestigious, and uh, excellent educational experiences that an American can have, Harvard, Columbia. So I want to get to how your legal career begins. Because if, if I understand it right, you start your career doing a lot of white collar defense work. And I'm fast forwarding to now when you were known as the nation's most aggressive, outspoken prosecutor, one of them of public corruption and Wall Street crime. So can you talk about that journey and what it's like having been on both sides of that in emerging as, as a prosecutor? Yeah. So,
2: um, I realized at some point that I wanted to be a lawyer. That was pretty early on. I like to say that I had the impulse very strongly fairly early on when I read Inherit the Wind. It moved me in, in many ways and, you know, the way it described courtroom scenes. More specifically, I knew that I wanted to be a prosecutor and even more specifically than that to be an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York was when I was in law school and I took a class on trial practice and I, I wasn't, the most diligent attender of classes, um, when I was in law school, which I sometimes am loath to say. But the one class I prepared really hard week in and week out that I went to every class of was, was trial practice. And you do a sample, you know, one week you do an opening statement, another week you do a cross examination, another week you do a direct, you know, redirect, et cetera. And boy, that was heaven for me because the craft of it was really fascinating. And then as I learned more about what a U.S. Attorney's Office was like or a prosecutor's Office was like, <laughs> It occurred to me that it was the ideal place for someone like me to work because you don't represent one individual's interest because it helps a particular person. That's noble. It could be great work and it's very important and it can be protective of people's civil rights. But I like the idea of being in a place where you don't have to make arguments you don't believe in, but you only do that which you think is right. And if you don't think it's right, then you don't bring the case. You know, when when I was hiring prosecutors, you want to have people who have the experience of the other side.
1: Hmm.
2: Uh, And, you know, some people call it a revolving door. I think that's not the right way of looking at it. You want to have people who have had the experience, if possible, of representing an individual and understanding how much power the government has Mm. and understanding that the things that you do as a prosecutor, forget about indicting someone or having them arrested, but just opening an investigation or issuing a subpoena, how that is the equivalent of rolling a hand grenade across the threshold of a business or a home. You want people to understand how much power they have. Mm. And so I I thought that served me well, having been on the other side in, in certain kinds of cases before I came to the U.S. Attorney's Office. So then
4: you become one of the most prominent U.S. attorneys just by virtue of the Southern District, in addition to the work that you did and the approach that you took. And one of the things that's been on my mind, looking at the Department of Justice, and and I should say I'm, I'm the rare presidential candidate who's not a lawyer Never went to law school, and so it's very much on the outside looking in when I'm I'm trying to understand. You are going to live things. a long
2: time, my friend.
4: <laughs> I guess it's never it's never too late. But um, for the most part, as a mayor, most of my interactions with the U.S. Attorney's Office were when we were teaming up on violence prevention efforts and trying to uh, develop strategies on that front. But the other way I came to know federal prosecutors actually was by chance through my military reserve unit. So I joined a, an intelligence unit in Chicago uh, or outside of Chicago, and A lot of the officers there were uh, either FBI agents or prosecutors. And one of the things I remember from just socially and, and professionally getting to know people who worked in that office is that they were always, in my experience, almost ridiculously careful not to be political, even offline. And I'm thinking now to this moment we're in where we have everything from The politically motivated removal of U.S. attorneys, uh, even just the way during the Republican National Convention that we saw federal property and federal processes, pardoning and uh, immigration swearing and, you know, these things that are supposed to have absolutely nothing to do with politics being just mixed in. It's something that symbolized ultimately by the president's use of the White House as a site to campaign from. What do you think it'll take for the non-political culture that's supposed to be so important to the Department of Justice to recover from this experience? And where do we go from here?
2: Going back to what your memory is, that's what it's supposed to be like. That if you're in federal service, particularly the Justice Department, which is different from every every other agency in the government, it's supposed to be the least political agency in the government, you're not supposed to know what their political affiliation is or base any decision-making in hiring on whether they're conservative or liberal, whether they're Democrats or not. In fact, my time in the Senate, we did an investigation of politicization of the Justice Department, and the Inspector General wrote a multi-hundred-page report talking about how that rule was violated for a period of time under George W. Bush's Justice Department. You know, as, as the saying goes, justice must not only be done, it must be seen to be done. And what that means in part is that it has to be seen to be done equally, whether you're old or young, whether you're white or black whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you know, those things don't matter. What matters is the facts and the law and you treat everyone equally. And I used to joke when I was in office, you know, the way you should think about this is there are really three political parties. There are Democrats, Republicans, and federal prosecutors. There's no Democratic or Republican way of prosecuting a robbery case or a homicide case or a corruption case. Now, politics enters into the rhetoric in other places about that, because by definition, if you're charging public corruption against an elected official, that elected official will be from, you know, almost always one party or another. Our record in in office was we prosecuted a lot more Democrats than Republicans. But one of the reasons you have to be assiduously and studiously apolitical is so that when you do bring a case against an elected official or someone who's associated with an elected official, that the public has confidence that you did it for the right reasons. All of that is being undermined and being questioned for a lot of different reasons. Among them, I think the most culpable person is the President of the United States, who basically has said he wants people who are close to him to be spared. And on the other hand, if people are your adversary, he kind of wants them locked up. (laughs) He wants people to go after him. You can have the best laws in the world. You can have the best constitution in the world. But if the people suck, (laughs) if if the people are inept, Where the people are corrupt, you can turn the law to your purpose and exercise your discretion in a way that would cause huge miscarriages of justice. We have to concentrate not just on what the laws are and having better rules, but on making sure that you have good people who are exercising their discretion in a good and honest and fair-minded way. That's how you get a lot of terrible things to happen. It's not just the laws, it's the people too.
5: Consumer Cellular. When Freedom Calls, we're here to answer. Call us at
3: 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5GB data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest-cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023.
4: I'm a big fan of uh, Hilary Mantel. I don't know if you've ever read uh, any of her fiction. She's, she's written these yeah, novels about Thomas Cromwell, who was Henry VIII's lawyer in the 1540s. I don't know how being a lawyer in the, the England in the 1530s and 40s compares to today. But in the middle of this this novel, there there's this line she has that always sticks with me. She said, when you're writing laws, you're testing words to find their utmost power. Like spells, they have to make things happen in the real world. And like spells... They only work if people believe in them. So what I want to put to you as somebody who's who's lived in the law and also had a a front row seat to so many of the corruptions of law and legal processes that are going on is what's your level of confidence that Americans will believe in the integrity of our system of law enough for it to work 10, 20 years from now? And, And what will it take to make sure that the damage done in this moment doesn't stick with us
2: for the rest of our lifetimes? So that's a central question. And I think it takes culture, which comes from the top. Hmm. I mean, if you're talking about overall trust and confidence in institutions, that has been sort of dwindling over time. So now imagine you have a justice system and any justice system is going to have controversy, especially when people who are high up, who have political affiliations, engage in misconduct that has to be investigated. And in some ways, it's impossible for things not to get somewhat polarized. People care a lot about their candidate for president. Usually, however, there's always a little bit of you know, claiming of a witch hunt and Bill Clinton in his time attacked the prosecutors. Richard Nixon was careful not to do that so much publicly because he understood there might be some backlash, but he did it some, Hmm. and he certainly did it behind closed doors. The difference now is Donald Trump and his allies have no line that they won't cross in attacking good people. Part of the harm has been done because you have someone with the biggest bully pulpit in the world compelling people to lose their trust and faith in law enforcement. Do people make mistakes? Yes. Did some people do things that they're not supposed to do? Yes. But the wholesale undermining of any decision by anyone in the Justice Department, I think you lay that at the feet mostly of the president, even though it's his Justice Department. The first thing that has to happen is when new leaders come in, they have to knock it off. They have to stop doing that. They have to announce on politically sensitive things I'm going to let the career people make their recommendation. It's also for the benefit of the leaders, too, so they don't look political. And they don't look like they're, they're not living up to their oath that they owe the public. So, so you need that. I think there are also some other, you know, rule kind of reforms that you can engage in. You should have starker policies that are written out. Again, that's not enough because people can defy those policies as we see with the Hatch Act. There are rules against what the president did at his convention, the Republican convention. But if you're the president and you don't have a, a good enforcement mechanism, there's nothing anybody can do about it. So you need people. To enforce these rules about separation of politics from from law enforcement, but but you know, I think mostly you need a period of time during which good people at the tops of these places are not doing the kind of nonsense you 've seen trump do
4: so you mentioned presidential accountability, and earlier you you mentioned the example of Nixon, which which got me thinking about something uh, i 've noticed, which is you know, after Nixon resigned from office, President Ford decided to pardon him. And uh, while there, there was some anger at the time, and it may have cost President Ford his career and his chances of reelection, that in the judgment of history from a sort of medium term perspective, it was viewed as a fairly noble act. He had maybe even knowingly uh, hurt his own political standing by doing something that he felt was important in pardoning Nixon. But I've noticed, especially as I speak to anyone who's any younger than me, uh, a level of puzzlement about whether that was the right decision. So I guess, first of all, I'm just curious what you think of that, that episode in U.S. history. Did Ford do the right thing? Um, does the Trump presidency make a, create a different perspective on whether Ford did the right thing? But then the obvious follow-up, three years from now, five years from now. Given the number of guilty pleas and convictions, you know, associated with the people around President Trump, it's not wild to suppose that he himself may face criminal liability or responsibility in the future. Because you you have expertise in, in public corruption, a, a president calls you in a few years and says, uh, you know, a pardon case has hit my desk concerning former President Trump. What is the right thing to do? How do you approach that? So I'll ask you to look, look backwards historically and then look forward speculatively. And 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 do the same principles apply from
2: one case to the other? Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're different in some ways, but they also have some similarity. With respect to Ford and Nixon, my sense is consistent with what I think historians think is that it was a good and selfless act on the part of Gerald Ford to move the country forward. I think that some other things weighed on his decision. Among those things are, one, Nixon resigned. He accepted in some way some responsibility and had some contrition, right? He actually left office. And a lot of the misdeeds that are attributable to Nixon were known. There are probably a whole bunch of others, but you kind of understood what the facts were. He kind of pled guilty in a professional sense, not in a courtroom and he didn't suffer a, a prison sentence, but there was some closure because the man left office, right? And got, got in the helicopter. If you have a current situation where There is criminality on the part of the president of the United States, let's say Donald Trump. And there's lots of other unknown stuff that he has done or has been doing that remains to be uncovered. And you have, you know, uh, investigation going on by the New York Attorney General and the Manhattan District Attorney. One could imagine that there are lots of other things going on with the organization and interference and obstruction kinds of issues and some things with respect to what Bob Mueller was investigating have still, you know, maybe not come to light. You both have an absence of full understanding of the conduct of the president, and he also hasn't left office. So if he were defeated at the polls and he would be able to be subject as a legal matter to prosecution, it's sort of different. What is similar is, boy, you know, the next administration, if there's a new administration, has to think very carefully, both for moral reasons and also practical reasons about how to proceed. Morally, they might think, you know, if someone has done bad things, they should be accountable. No one's above the law. But they also have a country to govern, and the country is more polarized than it's ever been. Even if Donald Trump goes away after he's defeated and, and accepts the election results, there are tens of millions of people who will be supportive of him and will be absolutely antagonistic to anything that it happens to him, further investigations, prosecutions, being held accountable. And they will, because they have been conditioned in part by him, they will view those things as political payback even if that's not true, and even if the people that you are putting in charge of that kind of thing in your justice department or or in a commission or whatever are fair-minded, you know, think of the example of of Robert Mueller. It's going to be hard to get the business of your administration done. It's going to be hard to deal with things like income inequality and criminal justice reform. So I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know what the right balance is to strike. What I do know is it's going to be very, very difficult to figure it out. But Barack Obama's uh, justice department had to deal with a much smaller, less complicated version of this, and no, nobody's fully satisfied. When Eric Holder, as the Attorney General, had the Department take a look at some of the practices of the of the CIA with using enhanced interrogation techniques and black sites and other things, and there are a lot of people who wanted folks to go to jail, and there were other people who thought we should move on. That's always going to be a difficult issue. So, I, so I think there's a parallel, you know, history rhymes. There's a parallel between the Nixon era and this time. I think there are notable differences uh i don't envy the people who are going to have to decide the best way to make sure that justice is done and accountability is had but also not split the country in two and be able to do all the other important things that we need to do as a country it's in some ways frightening to think about that
4: reality that you mentioned a lot of his supporters being in that may just be different in its in its
2: nature than the reality that other americans are in yeah look i mean you said something on a campaign trail that i respected very much and you reminded me of it with your question and that is I think you and the other candidates got asked the question, you know, will you direct to the Justice Department to investigate and prosecute Donald Trump for X, Y, or Z, or for anything? And I was very pleased to hear your answer, which would have been my answer, which was some version of, look, people should be held accountable for what they've done, and no one's above the law, that includes the president, but that is a decision for the Justice Department. That's a decision right. that should be made independently based on the facts and the law, and if you have an elected official, a politician like me or someone else as the president, who is directing a prosecution or investigation of a political rival, that's what got us in this mess in the first place. Right. So we should be careful of saying yeah. in the future <laughs> that we're gonna direct people to bring right. a prosecution because that's what Trump does. And it doesn't make it better or right if you're on the other side. Right.
4: And yeah, the the reason I I responded that way because I, I just feel like nothing good can come of a political official directing prosecutions of political figures and what we're seeing right now is pretty horrific in terms of a president directing DOJ to be lenient for political reasons you could argue there's something even more fearsome about the prospect of a president directing a DOJ to be aggressive for political reasons
2: that's what trump is doing i mean he's literally he's literally saying those things and we got to get away from that you know we can't repeat in the other direction, Mm -hmm. you know, some of that kind of rhetoric and conduct on the part of this president. So another thing, again,
4: not a lawyer, but I do talk to lawyers on TV and podcasts. And one of the central things I think that people study and and weigh in the law is the nature of evidence. And there's a whole set of rules around what you can and can't use for evidence, but also uh, a lot depends on just what we believe. This is partly on my mind just because uh, one of my colleagues at Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Study uh, was presenting at a seminar, introduced uh, me to a website I, I've never heard of before called thispersondoesnotexist.com. If you get a minute, uh, this is the <laughs> one thing I'll leave you with for the Oh my day. goodness, it sounds intriguing. Uh, every time you load it, a photo comes up of a person. Uh, sometimes you think like, oh, eh, that kind of looks like somebody I know. None of these people exist. It's all generated by oh, deep uh, algorithms. Oh, fix. Exactly. So this is Got an expert okay. on deep, deep fix. And that was the context that he was uh, introducing us to some of the technology out there. And it is alarming. It feels like our grasp on... What is real is maybe slipping away and, of course, also being kind of energetically and actively undermined, uh, whether it's by domestic actors for political reasons or by hostile foreign powers for strategic reasons. So with all of that swirling around, what has to happen for the law and, and for the country to keep up and know that we, we have some level of faith in
2: our ability to sort out what is fact from what is fiction? So that's a, a great question, and it goes to a troubling issue that a lot of people say is the next disaster for a lot of reasons, for institutions and for the law and for people's reputations. And that's this issue of deep fake and what you can believe and not believe. Um, We don't have enough time to focus on it because in the interim, we have a pandemic and we have an election and we have the economy in a recession and so many other things going on. But it is going to be one of the central things people focus on in the near future. And as a legal matter, it affects both the possibility of being able to implicate people in bad conduct that they didn't commit because you could have doctored, I mean, you're talking uh-huh. about a photograph, but there, yeah. there is now technology that is soon going to be able to be gotten by people who don't have a lot of means. You don't have to be a big, you know, Hollywood studio to show you, Pete Buttigieg, committing a crime. But it's also going to be a problem in the other direction which people don't think about as much, which is suppose you did rob a bank in an age in which there are deep fakes where people believe that some of the stuff is made up. How are you going to get people to believe even with authentication from experts, that it does actually depict a person shooting someone or robbing a bank. They'll say, look, that's a deep fake. And so it's kind of it's kind a metaphor for what's happening in the country generally. You know, the issue with Donald Trump, it's not an attack on truth. In other words, it's not an attack on a particular fact that he doesn't want you to believe that fact. He wants you to believe a different fact. That's easy. And people can deal with that. And that's not as harmful to society. What's harmful is if someone like Trump or someone else gets you to doubt the nature of truth itself and the concept of this goes right to that question what what is the nature of truth and courtrooms and criminal cases and civil cases too they all rely on a fundamental principle that fundamental principle is that there is a truth and that the truth is knowable and provable and if you can't prove a particular truth then the case goes away and you know there is some hope that expertise will be developing so that people if they have the proper metadata that you can stay one step ahead but you know if people are given to believe everything is made up and it could just as easily be true as not true i don't know how much experts are going to matter
5: You mentioned the loss of
4: challenge to expertise or the, uh, I think in many ways, a loss of faith in expertise that have life or death implications, especially with regard to responding to COVID-19. Why do you think that happened? Did experts blow it in some way? Is this the result of nefarious efforts to undermine the credibility of experts or,
2: or are experts to blame or is there something else going on? I think it's all those things that you mentioned. I think you have, you know, repeatedly day after day, somebody who has a particular point of view, I hate to keep going back to the president, but he's, He's sort of an avatar of all these things. And, you know, now in the last few months on the pandemic, you know, you have lots and lots of doctors who are saying the science is unclear about something or is clear in a particular direction, but Donald Trump and others have their own view of it and they feel they can just substitute it. And people want to believe things that they want to believe, right? Whether it's, I don't have to wear a mask because it's not effective, even if the science shows that it is. I think that's part of the problem. I think part of the problem is, you know, experts are fallible. And it happens to be true in connection with the pandemic that now everyone is saying with great adamance, Wear a mask, wear a mask, wear a mask, wear a mask. But there was a time Mm. not that long ago (laughs) when those same experts said, don't wear a mask, don't wear a mask. And people of ordinary common sense, and I like to think I am, you kind of wonder. So some of it, the experts hurt themselves. And some of it is they're just fallible. Expertise doesn't mean perfection. But if you weaponize the sort of imperfection of of experts, then you're going to get more and more distrust and lack of faith in that expertise. And you have in Trump, you know, the leading proponent of weaponizing. So, so an expert can be right 99 times out of 100, and that expert is wrong one time out of the 100. You got a guy with the biggest megaphone in the world who's gonna talk about that one error over and over and over and over again, and people listen, you know, rep- repetition matters. And that expert, you know, look at Dr. Fauci, he, you don't see him as much as you, as you did before. Yeah. Nobody can compete with that megaphone. And then another point I'll make that I think is more interesting, I don't fully understand the argument, but I'm reading an upcoming book by Michael Sandel, and having him on the podcast soon. And his book is called the, "The Tyranny of Merit," and he makes a kind of a different argument. He says, you know, people have to be careful that there is on the left a little bit among progressives, elites—you want you, put, you know the various names you can call them—who have so fetishized expertise and so much made it the case that well, everyone who's in office and everyone who's making a decision about something has to be super steeped and has to win it, have a Nobel Prize under their belt that it'll in it a little bit you know, is off-putting to people who don't understand how nuclear physics works, who don't understand climate models. And I'm one of those people, I don't understand those things. You're kind of saying to a lot of people in the country, you're not smart enough to engage in this debate. Leave it to the experts. And that's a disenfranchisement of good faith, well-meaning people who care about their country. And they're being told you're too dumb to understand these things. Leave it to the experts. That's an unintended consequence of, I think something that is meant to be done in good faith, which is allow science to govern. But that's not how it's always received in the eardrums of people who are made to feel like their opinions don't matter. I don't know. Do do you, do you find any truth in that? Absolutely.
4: I I think that's especially been operative in my part of the country where uh, there's a sense that sometimes this part of the country gets lectured to whether we're talking about industrial workers in uh, more carbon intensive industries or people who are uh, maybe a little skeptical about trade deals. And I remember feeling sometimes being on the other side of this on uh, learning just how deep the suspicion uh, was on little parochial things when I was mayor, like we would reroute a road. And people would say this is never going to work. And I'd be like, what do you mean? We did all these traffic engineering studies. These people know what they're <laughs> right. doing. They're traffic right. engineers for God's sake. I'm we have not what they are. We have yeah, listen to them. And you know, the truth was, uh, sometimes I was right, uh, sometimes we were wrong. Like sometimes when we went back and took another look at it, you know, people who who may not have been experts in traffic engineering, but they were experts in their own neighborhood, uh, were able to point to something that that was missed. And if there's a sense of condescension toward people, that can be incredibly dangerous. And then you couple that with the fact that, you know, most doctors, scientists, um, when they do get something wrong, they, they talk about it because it's part of their process. Uh, and, uh, politicians generally yeah, don't.
2: And then that's taken advantage. Right. Of. Exactly. It's used against yeah, them. Yeah. By bad faith. People look
4: in the same way. By the way, this, there's also something in the intelligence community, right? Where intelligence, good intelligence uh, assessments always say, you know, we assess with a high level of confidence this. They never say, this is absolutely certain. And we saw in the case of, for example, the Russia bounties, how that was twisted as a way to say, look, like they
2: didn't even know for sure, Who, you know, who cares what they said? And if you have someone who's going to, in a bad faith way, take advantage of people who are acting in good faith, you have a problem. And you could literally have an expert who 55,000 times gets an observation correct but it's an observation that people don't like on, on one side of an issue or another, whether it's climate change or anything else. And one time they make a mistake, all you're going to hear, hear about is that one time. In the same way, you know, there's a flip side to that too, that the president engages in. He can do 55,000 things wrong with respect to the pandemic. And one thing he can say I did was right. And He did something with respect to closing off travel from China. Mm-hmm. Right. And he just repeats that over and over and over and over right. again. As if that's the same as the fifty-five right. mistakes
4: he made. I, I think about it as, uh, you know, there's like 100 things he should have done. And he did this one thing. And, yeah, you know, one out of 100 generally an F. <laughs> but to them, they talk about it as if that shows he
2: was right on COVID all along. It's, it's part, of, look, part of the reason I mentioned the president so much is because he's to blame for a lot of this. But also, he has disproportionate power. Mm. He has the largest microphone on earth. And he uses it a lot. And he is capable of repetition without seeming to grow tired of it. And the combination of shamelessness, the largest platform on earth, the repetition, you know, once someone like that goes, if the next person is not like that, I think a lot of this, fade. not all of it, because you still have other leaders who can, you know, spout nonsense and propaganda. But a lot of it fades because you don't have someone who's so present and dominant in everyone's life, whether you're Democrat or Republican or independent, telling you what to think and weaponizing these discrepancies. Yeah. Well, a lot depends on that uh, proving right. So, yes. Uh, I, I hope that's what will happen.
4: On this podcast, we were thinking a lot about the decade ahead and how that decade is going to shape really the rest of the the era that we're living in. So I'm wondering if, if you're thinking about the perspective of somebody who's just graduating from law school right now and was motivated to study the law because they believe in the rule of law, but for the entirety of their law school career, they've seen this president and this administration doing these things. What would you say to them Uh, You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation uh, some immigrants might have in the back of their head that question: Did I make the right choice when I came to the United States? I'm sure there's a lot of budding lawyers who are asking themselves the question: Did I make the right choice by pursuing the law? What would you say to them to give them hope about the path they've chosen and the future of the rule of law? I would say,
2: welcome to the profession. I would say, read my book. Uh, (laughs) uh, But even if you don't read the book, pay attention to the notion that I already alluded to earlier in our conversation. That is. Who the lawyers are on an issue matters. If all lawyers are equal and everyone's judgment is the same, then it, then it shouldn't matter if you decide to become a lawyer or someone else decides to become a lawyer. We have cases, some of which I talk about in the book, where a miscarriage of justice happened. Someone who should not have been prosecuted for a crime was prosecuted for a crime. And then later it turns out that they could, you know, there's proof that they were not guilty. Most of the time in those cases, and one example I give is 17 years, a number of people spent Time in prison for a murder they had not committed, the laws hadn't changed. It's that the excellence and mm. rigor of the people who are responsible for the case was different. So the first bit of hope I would give to these hypothetical students you're talking about is have confidence in yourself that if you are a person of integrity and good faith and honesty and good judgment, that you can make a difference, even if you're not changing a single law. But you know, having a law degree is a powerful tool. The ability to be a member of a, of a bar and to represent and help, you know, underdogs and underprivileged folks, or to right a wrong, or to cure an injustice, you know, there are a lot of opportunities that lawyers have to do that that ordinary citizens don't. You know, the, the folks who are going through this process, you should be very honored that you have, will have a power that many other people don't have. And to think proudly of of the model that the law provides for how maybe in the rest of society, we can, you know, learn to understand each other better, persuade people as opposed to bash them over the head.
4: That's really powerful. I think a vindication of the the, the idea of the law, but also the idea that it matters who's doing these things almost makes me wish I went to law school. That's not a small thing. (laughs) It's never too late. (laughs) That was a fascinating conversation. I'm already tempted to ask for a follow-up because I feel like we have so many more things we could talk about. One thing I I couldn't quite get off my mind as we were talking was how one consequence of this Trump presidency is people like Preet, who was heading up a crucial district within the Department of Justice with a clear commitment to tackling corruption, the exact kind of public servant that a president depends on. People like him were pushed out of government, often as a reaction or a response to their decision to do the job with integrity. On the other hand, that has not stopped him from being a very influential voice in the law and in America, and I expect we'll continue to see a lot of impact from him in the decade ahead. People like Preet Bharara are out there standing for justice, fighting for change, and that is good news for the era to come. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: QUI.com. Made for women by women.